Revelation chapter 20 is where we find ourselves this morning as we continue uh, to make our way through this book. I think we have maybe four more sermons and we're done. And so Revelation chapter 20, um, we'll be reading verses 11 through 15. Uh, this is uh, a scene that is known as the great white throne judgment, Revelation 20, beginning at verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The church um, context that I grew up on or grew up in uh, was very big on Bible prophecy. I I remember as a a teenager, our church, I think every year would have a Bible prophecy conference. And if you grew up or knew anything about uh, dispensational circles, you know that um, dispensationalists are are very into Bible prophecy typically. Uh, You might, if you ever have been in those churches Remember all the charts that were supposed to lay out everything that was going to happen in the future. Now, I think today we have maybe swung to the other end of the spectrum, and I think that eschatology, or the the doctrine of last things, has kind of fallen on hard times. Uh, You will sometimes hear Christians say, I don't think eschatology is really all that important. Whether you're a a premillennialist or a post-millennialist or an amillennialist, doesn't really matter. We're all going to be in heaven together one day. And, and there's a sense in which I get that. There's a sense in which I'm sure you get that. Um, eschatology is, is not ultimately a salvation issue. Uh, in heaven right now, there are those who held all three millennial views in this life. They're all amillennialists now, but they held all three views, you got it. Now, we don't know, do we? We, we think we know. We, we think we have it all figured out. But the fact of the matter is that uh, Christians throughout the ages have disagreed on the subject of eschatology. And it's not a salvation issue. But I hope that you would agree with me that We can't say that eschatology doesn't matter at all. Uh, What we believe about the end, what we believe about where this world is headed, that has a profound effect on our lives right now. It it has a a tremendous influence on what we live for and what we prioritize. It, It has a great impact on how we raise and train and care for our children. This morning, we we come to a passage, again, that is known as the Great White Throne Judgment. And it's a very grim passage. It's a sobering thing to to realize that this is really going to happen one day. 
This is going to take place one day. The the setting for this passage is that Christ has just returned. As we we saw last week at the first part of this chapter, um, the enemies of God have been defeated. uh, The devil has been thrown to the lake of fire. And now all people will be judged. Simon Kistemaker, who's a Bible commentator, says this is the end of world history. God's plan has been fulfilled. Everything that had to be taken care of has been completed. God now calls everyone into his courtroom, and as the books are opened, everyone is judged in accord with divine justice. Children, this is really going to happen one day. This is really going to take place. Our passage tells us that it is coming. And this morning, we want to look at this passage in three parts. First of all, we want to see the judge. Then we want to see the judged, and then we want to see the judgment. So we have the judge seated on his throne. We have those who are judged by that judge, and then specifically we see the judgment. And one thing that's interesting about this passage is that this is the first time in the entire book of Revelation where the final judgment is described in detail. It's been mentioned before, it's been alluded to before, but this is the very first time where this is mentioned in detail. And so first of all, let's look at the judge. John sees a throne, and and I want you to notice two things about this throne. Remember, there are no unimportant words in the Bible. There are no add-on words in the Bible that that the author was just using to, to run up his word count. Notice, first of all, that this throne is called a great throne. Children, in the original language in which this was written, Greek, the word translated Greek is megas, the word from which we get our English word mega. This is a mega throne. Why is it described this way? Well, very simply, to to highlight the greatness and the majesty and the glory of the one who is seated on this throne. You know, if you, go to, if you go to court for some reason, let, let's say you go to court to um, fight a traffic ticket, you'll, you'll appear before a judge, right? And, and you know that the judge is an important person. Uh, he or she is a, a person of, of great authority, and you are to respect them. But in a very real sense, that, that judge is no different than you are. As the saying goes, that judge still puts his or her pants on one leg at a time just like you do. But this great throne here in Revelation 20 depicts for us a judge that is unlike any other judge. No one is greater. No one is higher. In our nation, you know that there is an appeals process. You can can always appeal a ruling to a higher court all the way up to to the Supreme Court. But, But there's no one you can appeal to above this judge There's no greater judge. There's no higher court. And on the day of judgment, his ruling will be final. That is what is meant by this mega throne. Secondly, you'll also notice that this throne is white. In the the Bible, white is a symbol of purity. It's a symbol of righteousness. The imagery here is that this judgment will be totally righteous, totally just. Human judges, as you know, can be bought off. 
I, I read a story the other day that dates back to 2007. There was a judge by the name of Gerald Garson who was uh, convicted of accepting bribes up to, I think, tens of thousands of dollars to uh, manipulate the outcome of divorce proceedings. And so one of the, the parties in this divorce would slip Garson some money and he would, he would rule their way. And he was found to be taking bribes. Not this throne. This is a white throne. This judge can't be bribed. This judge can't be bought off. His judgment will be in in perfect holiness. On that day, no one will be able to stand before that judge and say, hey, can I slip you a couple of hundreds? No one will be able to say to that judge, well, judge, at least I'm not as bad as those people. No one will be able to say, look, judge, at my resume, look at all the good things that I have done. No, this judge's standard before whom all of us will stand This judge's standard is perfection. And so seated on this throne is one who is glorious and majestic, who judges in perfect righteousness. Children, who is this who is seated on this throne? Who is this judge? This is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. This is confirmed in in other passages of the Bible that it will be Jesus who judges this world. Matthew chapter 16, verse 27, Jesus says the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. John 5, 22, Jesus says the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Acts 10, Peter is preaching a sermon, and he says, and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that Jesus is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. And in Acts 17, Paul says that God has fixed a day. In other words, there's a a specific day coming. We don't know when that day is, but God knows. He has fixed a day on which he will judge this world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And so very simply, this great white throne judgment on this throne will be seated the Lord Jesus Christ to judge all people according to what they have done. Now notice what else John sees here. He sees the the earth and the sky flee from God's presence. This isn't some courtroom in a small town in Kansas with four people in it. The, The picture here is that this is a massive global event. This is an event that affects the entire earth and the sky. Peter, you know, Peter echoes some of this in one of his epistles in 2 Peter. So if you have your Bible, if you would turn over to 2 Peter chapter 3. And I want you to notice uh, some of the, the language that Peter uses here that kind of builds on what John sees. 2 Peter chapter 3. Second Peter 3 verse 7. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Now look at verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, 
And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Notice the middle of verse 12. The heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. This is a, this is a massive event. This is a global event. John is telling us, Peter is telling us that one day the entire cosmos is going to be renewed. The, the new heavens and the new earth, which we will look at, uh, Lord willing, next week, will be ushered in. Romans chapter 8, verse 21 talks about this when, when Paul writes that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Brothers and sisters, what's being told to us is that one day all of the effects of sin will be removed from the creation. And as we will see next Sunday, there will be no more pain, there will be no more death, there will be no more sorrow. The entire creation will be renewed. And so the stage has been set The judge has entered the courtroom. He is majestic. He is glorious. He is perfectly righteous. He is perfectly holy. There's no one above him to whom you can appeal. And as he comes to the courtroom, the entire creation is about to be renewed and all people are about to be judged. And that's the second thing that we see here. John now sees the dead, both great and small, standing before the throne of Christ. That that phrase, you'll notice it, great and small, is just another way to say everyone. Everyone who has ever lived, important, unimportant, rich or poor, educated, uneducated, Everyone who has ever lived is in this courtroom standing before this judge. When Jesus returns, all who have died will be raised from the grave and together with everyone who is alive at that time, they will all appear. We will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And at that point, we are told that the books will be opened. Children, what are these books? Well, verse 12, the end of verse 12 actually tells us, it says the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. These books contain a record of everything that we have ever done. Everything that we have done, everything that we have said, everything that we have thought is found in these books. All people will be judged on the basis of that. Or those books. Now I want you to think back for a moment to our series earlier this year on Sunday nights, if you were here, on covenant theology. One of the covenants that we looked at together, I think it was the second one we looked at together, is called the covenant of works. And in the covenant of works, God demanded perfect obedience from Adam. And he told Adam that he would inherit eternal life if he kept God's command perfectly. Now we know Adam failed. We know he plunged the entire human race into sin. But did you know that there is a sense in which the covenant of works still exists today? The covenant of works has not been abolished. The covenant of works has not been done away with. 
It's still in existence today. God still demands perfect obedience to his law. It's not as if once Adam sinned, God said, okay, I'm going to change the grading scale. Now it's all going to be done on a curve. And and if you're better than 50% of the people, you're good. No. God still demands of us perfect obedience. And so as these books are opened, we are being reminded here that, that all people will be judged on the basis of their works. And this lines up with the rest of the Bible. We, we heard earlier in Psalm 24 that if you want to be in God's presence, you have to have clean hands and a pure heart. Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 6, that God will render to each one according to their works. 2 Corinthians 5.10, Paul says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, verse 2, Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. So you put all of this together, and, and the Bible says you have to have clean hands and a pure heart. The Bible says that God will judge us according to our works. The Bible says that nothing will be hidden and that, that nothing will remain in secret. And, and one thing we have to remember is that God doesn't forget. There's nothing we can do, there's nothing that we can say, there's nothing that we can think that God doesn't know about. Again, the writer of Hebrews, no creature is hidden from his sight. God sees it all, God knows it all. Everything we've done, everything we've said, everything we've thought, it's recorded in these books. Doesn't matter our age. Doesn't matter our upbringing, doesn't matter our background, doesn't matter our education, doesn't matter our church membership. One day we're all going to be before that throne. How will you fare? How will it go for you when you are judged on the basis of what you have done? How how will it go for you when you are judged against the standard of God's perfect righteousness? Now, if the passage ended here, if this is all we've got, we, we would not be feeling all that well right now. Some of you might already be squirming in your seat. What's going to happen to me? Did you notice, though, that that thankfully another book is opened? It's called the Book of Life. This book has been mentioned before in Revelation, and and to to understand what this book is, if you would take a moment and go back to chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13. Revelation 13, verse 8. And all all who dwell on earth will worship it, meaning the beast, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Now go to chapter 17. And again, verse 8. Revelation 17, verse 8, the beast that you saw was and is not, 
and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. In, in both of these passages, we are told that the wicked, the unbelievers, those who live in rejection of God and rebellion against God, we are told that their names are not written in the book of life. And so if we put, we put two and two together, we come to understand that the book of life contains the names of all the redeemed. Those for whom Jesus died and accomplished their salvation. Those who, by grace alone, embrace Christ as Lord and Savior. And as we will see in a moment, those whose names are in this book will be spared, will be saved from that terrifying judgment. Now, you know, this is a scene that, at least for me, is, is almost impossible to imagine. Everyone who has ever lived is here. Everything that they have ever done, said, or thought, it's all in these books, and, and it causes people to ask questions, you know, how long is this going to take? You think of the billions of people who have lived. How long is this judgment going to be? Is, is it going to be like a giant screen where all of your words and actions and thoughts are played up for everyone to see? The Bible doesn't answer those questions, but it, but it does tell us that the day is coming. That's what's important. This day is coming. And it tells each one of us to be prepared and ready for that day. And so we see the judge, we see those before his throne, and now we come to the judgment. Notice the end of verse 12. The dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Now there's a question, and and maybe you've asked it before, maybe you're asking it right now, and the question is, if Jesus paid for all of my sins, and if all of my sins are, are washed away because of what Jesus has done, And if I'm right now clothed in his perfect righteousness, why am I going to be judged? Why am I going to stand before this throne and be judged since my sins have already been covered? Well, two things. First of all, the Bible indicates that there will be various levels of rewards in heaven. One such example is Matthew chapter 25 where Jesus tells the parable of the talents. And in that parable, Jesus makes the point that that Christians will be rewarded for how we have used the talents and the treasures that God has given us. That's what Jesus, the point he's making in Matthew 25. Now we have to remember that these rewards are, are not anything that we have earned, and so we have no reason to be proud or arrogant or boastful. They are gifts of God's grace. In fact, the Heidelberg Catechism makes that very point. In in the Heidelberg, the question is asked, how can our good works be said to merit nothing when God promises to reward them in this life and the next? And the answer is, this reward is not merited. It is a gift of grace. And so for the believer, the judgment, this judgment will be the occasion for God to reward his people by his grace. And secondly, this judgment will also be the occasion to demonstrate the reality that our lives gave evidence that we were truly regenerated. 
You see, there will be fruit in the believer's life. There will be evidence that a a person was truly saved by grace alone. But again, at the same time, it's important to remember that this fruit or these good works, these are not the cause of our salvation. And this is why we are so thankful that alongside these books is also the book of life. More importantly, the book of life is given a fuller name in Revelation 13. It's the book of life of the lamb who was slain. The the lamb, Jesus Christ, is the only one who can save us from the judgment that is to come. Not our works, not our kindness, not our charitable gifts, not anything that we do, but only the Lamb of God who lived for us, died for us, and rose again. So Christian, on the day that you stand before that throne, it's the day, on the day that you stand before that mega throne, that white throne, as the books are opened, the book of life will also be opened. And on that day, Christian, it will be declared of you, this is one for whom Jesus died. This is one for whom Jesus gave his life. His sins and her sins are covered. You might remember a story I told you a ways back about Martin Luther. Luther, um, he was an interesting fellow. He, he seemed to have a lot of run-ins with the devil. And um, one night he had a dream. And in the dream, the devil was mocking him and, and making fun of Luther. And, and, and the devil was saying to Luther, Martin, just think about your life. Just think about the mess you've made of your life. Just just think about all the things you've done. Just think about all the sins that you have committed. Martin, do you really think that that you're going to escape God's judgment? And we could say the same thing. We could think the same thing. I think of all my sins. Do Do I really think that I'm going to escape God's righteous judgment? And, and that's what the devil was pestering Luther with. Luther, you've blown it time and time again. You're weak. You're a failure. You really think that, that God's going to let you get off? Luther's answer was, was awesome. Luther said, Satan, you're right. It's all true. I have committed Countless sins in my life. And, and there's, there are many, many more sins that I have committed that are known only to God. But Satan, you're forgetting something. You're forgetting that at the very bottom of the list of all of my sins, it is written, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. Here's the point. Christian, if you are fearful of this day, if you are looking at this passage and saying, how will I make it? I know my sin. I know my failure. I know my weakness in word, thought, and deed. I know all the things I've done, and there are countless many other things that I can't even remember that God knows that I've done. How will I fare on that day of judgment? If if you are thinking that right now, remember, on the day... When the books are opened, 
on the day when all of our words and and deeds and thoughts are brought forward, we take comfort knowing that the blood of Jesus Christ covers all of our sins. And I can take comfort as well knowing that as, as one who has been credited with the righteousness of Christ, God now views me as if I had never sinned as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Jesus was obedient for me. You know, we we may fear this day. We may become anxious about the day of judgment. We don't need to be anxious. We don't need to be fearful. Brothers and sisters, your Savior loves you. He loves you. Your Savior lived for you. He's clothed you with his perfect holiness. Your Savior loves you so much that that he went to the cross. He shed his blood for you to to cover over, to, to wash away all of your sins, to smooth over and propitiate the wrath of God. On the day that he hung on the cross, He took God's judgment so that you would never face it. Never. Now certainly we are are called to use the talents, the gifts the Lord has given to us to serve one another, to glorify him. We, We should not be idle. We should not be lazy. We should not be complacent. But, But when it comes to our eternity, Christian, you are secure. Nothing can snatch you from your Father's hand. Nothing can separate you from his love. This passage ends with a sober warning. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. There's no getting around this. There's, there's, no, um, there's no sugarcoating this. You can't be like Thomas Jefferson who took a pair of scissors and cut parts of the Bible out that he didn't like. We can't do that. We have to deal with this passage. First of all, if you're not a believer in Christ, if you're not trusting him to wash away your sins, you, you need to realize that, that this is where you are headed. Unless you confess your sins and and believe in Christ, you're headed to an eternity of God's wrath. There's no other way to put it. That's what God tells us. But there's good news for you. If you're here this morning and don't know Christ, if you're watching this morning and don't know Christ, there's good news. There's wonderful news in the Bible. Romans chapter 10 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord... And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. Unbeliever, come to Christ. And know the forgiveness of your sins. And and know the joy of knowing that you will not face this judgment. Your sins are not too great. Your wickedness is not too Enormous. Jesus died for sinners like us. Secondly, and I address 
you all this morning as believers. There's a sense in which this, this passage should shape us, right, and transform us and, and direct our lives and our priorities. I said to you several weeks ago, this, this world is not a circle, right? History is not a circle. It's a line. We're headed somewhere. This is where we're headed. Judgment day is coming. A day when, when all unbelievers are, are cast into the lake of fire is coming. This means we have a calling. We have a calling as Christians. We have a calling as a church to, to proclaim this good news. To not become so inwardly focused and so navel-gazing that, that we lose our witness. This is where this world is headed. It also means parents, grandparents, that we have a calling as well to, to teach our children. That's most important, right? Parents, your, your first calling is to train your children and to teach them the gospel over and over and over. It's so encouraging to me when I see so many families in our congregation who there's just generation after generation after generation of belief. And I hear children who will talk about their parents and say, my parents, they, they trained me. They trained us. They taught us the gospel. They, they showed us the love of Christ. It's so important we have the calling to teach our children. We have the calling to pray for them that they would know Christ as their Savior. And we have the calling, whoever the Lord places in our lives, to tell them the good news. Eschatology is not unimportant. Sometimes the particulars can be a little bit insignificant. But the big picture is not unimportant. This is where this world is headed. Brothers and sisters, we, first of all, take comfort this morning that we will not be overcome in the judgment because Jesus took it for us. But we're also reminded that we now have a calling to tell others of this good, saving news of Jesus Christ. He's coming. Are you ready? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have not left us in the dark about the future. We thank you that you have told us the truth. You've told us what reality is, that this is where all people are headed. Lord, on the day that we stand before Christ's judgment seat, we thank you that we can know that his blood will cover all of our sins. So we don't need to fear that day. Help us, Lord, to, to live our lives in light of that day. Help us to order our priorities so that we would serve you with the talents and the gifts you've given to us. Help us as well, Lord, to faithfully and diligently train our children and future generations to love the Lord Jesus to believe in him, 
to walk with him. Help us as well, Lord, as Christians and as a congregation to be intentional about reaching out to others with the good news of Jesus Christ. Lord, this is where we are headed. We do not know when it will be, but how thankful we are that our eternities have been settled because of what Christ has done for us. We pray if there are any here this morning who are not ready for that day, that you would so work in their hearts that they would confess the Lord Jesus Christ and believe on him and be saved from the wrath that is to come. We pray this in Jesus' name.